uh, we have the privilege of welcoming um, my friend, Bill Clem, tonight. And uh, he's going to bring us God's word from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there now. But um, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Bill, since many of you maybe don't know Bill. But um, our men's group, our men's ministry, just finished reading through uh, Bill's book. It's called Disciple, Getting Your Identity from Jesus. And so many of us have gone through this book. If you did not get a copy of this book, we have a few left over. Those are on the resource table. So just feel free to grab one on your way out and take it with you. No cost, right? Just free, free book. Great book that we all went through. Um, so I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, this is Bill's 45th year in ministry, uh, which is really amazing. It really is. Um, he's done 16 years of youth ministry in Portland and Seattle and Detroit. Uh, university ministry in Bellingham, Washington. Um, he's planted a church in the Seattle area that's still going strong, and it's helped birth two other churches. Uh, one of those churches is Soma, which is now a movement of churches led by Jeff Vanderstelt. You might be familiar with him. Uh, he's married to Sue, has four children and 12 grandkids. That's why the gray hair, right? So it's awesome. Uh, he is an avid rider of his motorcycle. So if you like motorcycle riding, Bill is your guy. I'm, I'm not. So maybe I ride on the back. I don't know, Bill, but that'd be probably awkward for both of us. So, um, but most recently, uh, before his current position, he was the formation pastor at Imago Day Community downtown. Uh, and he currently serves as the director for the Center of Pastoral Flourishing at Western Seminary. Uh, but guys, more than anything, uh, Bill is a friend. And um, he has been there for me in the ups and downs uh, over the last decade almost. Um, he's just one of those guys that when I am in crisis and I don't know what to do, I just I call Bill. And he always has something to say that's going to help ground me um, in Christ. And so I'm really thankful for you and uh, your um, presence in my life. And so uh, thankful that you're with us this evening, Bill. Um, but right now, I'm just going to pray for Bill as he comes up. And so if you would join me as we pray for Bill, and he's going to bring us God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have not left us to wonder who you are and what you've done. God, but your, your word is life to us, and I pray that tonight as we open it once again, as Bill opens it to us, um, Lord, that you really would um, cause us to be shaped by it for your purposes and your glory here in Gresham and way beyond. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am glad to be with you tonight. Um, I feel like I know your church because um, I, I know uh, Virgil and I know Josh, and uh, there were times when uh, I was praying for your church because I knew that you were supporting Josh, and there were times when I was praying for your church because I knew Virgil was trying to discern what was um, uh, God saying to him about our next steps. And um, I've been praying for you because I know that that can be an exciting and traumatic time all in one to uh, uh, say goodbye to somebody who uh, has nurtured you and cared for you and to say hello to someone who you've been partnering with and being able to advance the gospel in another part of the state. Um, I remember one of the times that I met with Josh, we, we were going to partner on a men's retreat, his church in Imago Day, and um, I had just got a new motorcycle, and it was in January, and I rode down from Portland to Corvallis to meet him, and I don't think I quit shivering the whole time that we met. It was, uh, it was terrible, and so, uh, um, but I am, I am glad to be here, and I, 
I really am excited to see uh, the fruit of two uh, of the friends that I uh, partner with in ministry and the people that they partner with. So uh, thank you for letting me uh, be part of, of how you pursue God together. Um, one of the things that I have missed most uh, during this COVID season is the opportunity to worship together. Um, and so uh, thank you to the worship team that, that uh, led us tonight as well. That was, it really was an invitation to experience the presence of God. Um, <clears throat> I want to look tonight at, at something that, that relates hopefully to where we've been as well as hopefully where you are and, and, and how your life fits together. Um, every one of us goes through trials on a, on a regular basis. There are a number of places in the Bible that help coach us into the attitudes or perspectives to embrace those, whether it happens to be a book like James that says consider it joy when you uh, encounter various kinds of trials, or whether it's a, a place that tells us that the trials are things that develop our faith, temptations are things that are not part of what God wants. The intriguing thing is that uh, there's a you know, the language that the New Testament was written in was, was Greek, and, and there's a word that actually gets translated in English for both of those, and so you almost either have to dive back to see what was going on or just kind of read the context, because there's a place where um, uh, Jesus uh, asks Philip, hey, well, how are we going to feed all these people? And it says he asks us to test his faith, and it's the same word that is trial, which is the same word as temptation. And you're kind of, well, I know Jesus wasn't tempting him. Uh, what, what was he doing there? And I, I think sometimes that a trial is something that builds our faith, and a test is something that reveals our faith, and a temptation is something that threatens our faith. And so it, it, it's hard to know because there are times when we're growing in our faith and we feel very threatened. And, and COVID could have been one of those times. Uh, I, I think that it, rather than it being its own experience, it, in a lot of ways it was an echo chamber. The, the other experiences that you had became amplified uh, in the context of what we've just are gone through and are coming through uh, in, in that sense. So I want to look at a passage that Jesus concluded his Sermon on the Mount with. The Sermon on the Mount uh, classically is framed up in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so we're looking at the end of chapter 7 where in, in sermon language, Jesus is landing the plane. Okay, his almost closing illustrations. And it's weird that I have to do a whole sermon just to explain or talk about his conclusion. So I, I want to look at it because I think it, it speaks to the wrestle, the, the place that, that most of us have found ourselves uh, during some of this time. So let me just go ahead and uh, read uh, Matthew 7, verses 24 uh, through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. But it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. I, I've lived in several uh, cities, and in 
two or three of them, I've kind of returned to those at different times. I grew up in Portland, and then I went away to college, and then I came back to Portland and married a girl from Portland. We had children, and I was a youth pastor in Portland, finished uh, seminary at Western, and then uh, I went to Seattle, and I was a youth pastor there for about seven years, and, and then I, um, I went to Chicago, and, and I worked with, with an organization, and then I went to Detroit, and I was a youth pastor. Detroit, I never went back to, and I, I'm grateful to God for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chicago, where I was in college, I went back uh, at, when the organization that I was uh, training with, I became their North American director. In Portland, I grew up here, uh, and then I went to college and came back here and got married, and then after um, uh, being in some of those other cities, about 11 years ago, I came back here and went on staff with Imago Day and am here at Western. And it's been an interesting thing to watch the changes in those towns from, you know, time when I was there in college to time when I was there uh, in my 40s to Portland when I was growing up here, coming back in my 20s and coming back uh, now in, yes, my 60s. And so as I kind of look at like all those different epic moments in the different places in these cities, I kind of feel like I have a bit of a read on what's what Americans are thinking. I haven't kind of lived in one little pocket all my life, okay? Um, at the same time, I understand that, that there are multiple generations and there are multiple thoughts that are going on. And, and I haven't lived in the South, which I think is its own little echo chamber. And, and I haven't um, uh, lived in California, which again, I'm grateful for. And so as I kind of uh, uh, want to look tonight at, at the idea of how would an American hear the verses we just read? Um, I have a tendency to think, especially that an American Christian hears those verses read this way. A foolish man is someone who's going to have a difficult life. That's the consequence of being a foolish man. You're going to have winds and rains and storms. And they're probably not a Christian. And the wise person is a Christian. And everything's going to turn out okay in the end. And that's probably how the average American Christian from Chicago to Seattle to Portland would hear those verses. And yet, that's not what these verses are saying at all. These verses aren't distinguishing Christian from non-Christian. In fact, Jesus is explicit in saying that both the wise man and the foolish man are the people who have heard his words. There isn't the foolish man doesn't hear his words, and the wise man hears his words. The foolish man is hearing Jesus' words. That's not what's foolish. And the wise man is hearing his words, and that's not what's wise. That's not the distinguishing factor. It's not what Jesus is inviting us to hang our hat on. I've heard Jesus' words, therefore I'm wise. Or I haven't heard his words, therefore I'm at jeopardy because I'm foolish. Both have heard his words. The interesting thing that I think most of us have had a little bit of a yellow flag raised on is what we would call prosperity theology. That, that the more you do for God, the more God's going to do for you. The more you trust Him, the more He's going to bless you. 
Uh, there was a time when I was a youth ministry professor up at um, uh, a, a, a seminary up in British Columbia. And when I was up there looking for a house, uh, our realtor that took us around, I, I said to him, hey, have you ever gone to church or ever considered it? And he goes, yeah, I used to go to church. I don't go anymore. I said, well, that sounds like a pretty definite long-term answer. What made you decide that that's not going to be an open question ever again? He said, I was going to church. My wife got sick. Pastor told me to pray for my wife, and my wife died. And he told me I didn't have enough faith. And he goes, if that's how God punishes me for not having enough faith, I'm not interested in him, and I'm not interested in going to church anymore. And he goes, so do you want me to keep showing you houses? <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't, you know, I wasn't interviewing your theology so that I could know whether or not you're going to be my realtor. I just wanted to know what you thought of church because that's a big part of my life. You know, uh, we did see each other a few more times, but it really didn't go anywhere. What, what, I, what I think that he was involved in was a church that believed that you pray right and somehow you've got God in an arm hold that he's going to have to do what you want so you can let him out. <laughs> that, that somehow we get to make God do our bidding by obeying him that it's a transactional relationship the more i work at this the more chips i in a sense get to accrue and then i can cash my chips on on whether it's a house or a marriage or children or health or whatever your dream happens to be that you're kind of working on a um, a retirement plan that god's going to bless you with can you see how that kind of gets convoluted with a a very Western worldview of what life looks like and that we've just kind of imported all of our environment into our expectations on God. Maybe one of the best ways for that to kind of be a litmus test in your life is to think about when something bad happens to you, okay? Um, I know that's hard to do in the last year. Everything's gone so well. But let's just uh, imagine that something didn't go well. Okay? And as you're trying to think through how it went, one of the questions that could pop up is, God, why? Why is this happening to me? Is it something I've done wrong? I, I thought we were tight. I thought I was, was doing what you wanted. How come this is happening to me? There's almost an underlying expectation that if I'm doing what God expects, he'll do what I expect. And it just comes up simply in that kind of question. If you go, well, no, no, I'm more mature than that, then let me ask you if you'd ever do this. Something good happens, you go, God, why did that happen? <laughs> I don't understand. I don't deserve that. that. That really doesn't happen nearly as often, does it? You know, we just kind of think, well, of course, God is good. I'm good. Good things happen. See, that's, that's the person who can miss how Jesus is even concluding his sermon. He's not saying, be good and God will be good. Be bad and God won't be good to you. He's basically saying, can you listen here? Your life will be different when what I am saying makes a difference in your life. You can't hear what I'm saying, believe what I'm saying, love me for saying it, and not change. And when that change happens, it actually reorders how we relate to people. It reorders how we see life. It reorders what we expect 
Every order is whether we can accept from God the good and the bad and not wonder if he's good or bad. So let me just kind of stop for a minute and tell you of an incident in my life where I came face to face with my own inner prosperity theologian. Okay? So I uh, was in my mid-40s and we had just um, moved back to Seattle uh, to plant a church. And um, when, I mean, we had been into it about six months. And we were going to go to church on a Sunday. And I came into uh, our bedroom, I go into the bathroom off the master, and my wife is curled up in like a fetal position type thing in pain. And I look at her and I go, uh, I'm not going to ask you if you're okay. <laughs> Getting the idea you're not. How long has this been going on? She goes, I've been feeling like this for months. But this is, this is the worst it's been. And I said, okay, uh, I'm going to make a couple calls and then we're going to go somewhere like to the hospital. So we go to the hospital. She has an uh, x-ray. The x-ray tech goes, just a minute, I'd like to make a call. Makes a call and within hours gets approved to do an MRI and we do an MRI and find that she has um, a tumor about the size of grapefruit and has ovarian cancer. And um, it turned out that it was phase four and uh, she was able to fight it with various forms of chemo and different other uh, uh, treatments. But over the course of the next seven years as we tried to plant a church, my wife got worse and worse and worse, and I eventually had to step away from planning the church because I had a new ministry front that was all-consuming. And then she passed away. So when Josh says that my wife is Sue, why, well, Sue is my second wife. Jeannie was my first wife. Jeannie was my wife that was from Portland. She graduated from Roosevelt High School, went to Biola University, and uh, taught at Portland Christian, and then at Benson High School. Um, so... When she died, I went through all this. God, what are you talking about? I built my house on the rock. I don't expect rain. I don't expect wind. I don't expect floods. And this feels like I can't imagine what a house falling feels like if this isn't it. And God let me say that. He didn't correct me. <laughs> he didn't say, I thought you were a mature Christian, Bill. He let me process with him. No? And he let me find him again in love. There wasn't ever a day I questioned whether I thought God was in control. But there are many days where I questioned whether or not he was good. And that was my fight, was back to a good God not back to a sovereign God or a strong God or a theologically correct God, other than that to think that God isn't good is not theologically correct. And so I found myself finding my way back to God, and these verses became powerfully profound to me in that I realized that I was thinking something was wrong because wind was coming. Something was wrong because I had experienced a flood. Something was wrong because rain was pelting my house. And Jesus is saying, Bill, I told you that was coming. <laughs> if anything, this should prove to you I'm true. 
not prove to you that I'm not real or that I'm not good. I, I told you this was going to come. I told you that I wasn't the magic bubble that somehow if you built your life inside me, that rain can't get in, that wind can't penetrate, that floods can't seep through. There is no magic bubble. The difference is you're not alone. I'm going to be in the rain with you. I'm going to be in the flood with you. And your life won't fall apart. And it sure felt like it was, but that wasn't the measure of reality. He was. So we get this idea that um, bad things do happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and that has nothing to do with whether or not that person is a Christian. Okay? Bad things are not the record of whether or not we're bad or whether or not we're good. Bad things are part of the world that we live in that needs redeeming also. Bad things are why we long and hope for a kingdom where the things that are out of joint get set in correction. It it actually fans the flame of hope to live in a fallen world rather than somehow pulls at our hope. So I would say that um, correction number one is that Jesus does not rescue us from trouble or difficulties or unpleasantness or pain or suffering. And if... And if you have received Jesus Christ to get delivered from that, you have bought the wrong product. If you have trusted in a Savior, if you've believed that there's someone who loves you, if you believe that you have, in a sense, at somewhere in your life said, what I want is more important than what you want, God, and you believe that there's a way that God has made for him to say, I know, and I'm willing to extend forgiveness to you. That's the delivery system that Jesus provides. That's the relationship that he invites us to. So that, that would be the first correction to a, uh, a world or a culture that sees somehow that, that what that passage is saying is that if I trust Christ, no rain, no wind, no flood. So let's, let's just kind of look at it uh, from the standpoint of putting those into some kind of categories, okay? So you have the wise builder and this foolish builder, and you see that the first three things happen to both, as we just said. They have the same exact experience, and that experience is not pleasant, okay? That the rain is not pleasant, the flood is not pleasant, the wind is not pleasant. Kind of comes as tests so that we can see where our faith is. Now, I, I like to, um, when, when I teach a class, I, I like to be able to give a test on the first hour. And then I like to be able to give that same test at the end of the class. And, and it's not just A, B, and C, A, B, and C. It's just two or three short answer questions to see how different their answers might be at the end of our time together in class. And I 
think it'd be fun if Jesus were to do the same thing. What are you trusting me for when you become a Christian? And at the end of our lives, go, what were you trusting me for when you became a Christian? And see how different the answers are at the end of class called life. Hopefully our answers reflect way more his perspective and way less our perspective. That our perspective got transformed into his perspective. That, that that was the purpose of the wind. That was the purpose of the rain. That was the blessing of the flood, is that you and I were able to leave who we were and become who God envisioned us being. That's the invitation. So if we were to kind of look at that from a standpoint, maybe we could look at the idea that, well, then what is it that distinguishes these two? And when we, when we look at the passage again, let's just kind of look at the passage and see the phrases as they maybe jump out at us. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, and then if you look at the beginning of verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, that becomes the correction. Wisdom is not knowing what to do. Wisdom is doing it. Wisdom, basically, is being able to discern how would God be pleased with my life and that that's what I want. You remember when Jesus is agonizing in the garden and the takeaway is not my will, but your will be done. I'm kind of working through a passage um, and Josh and I had lunch a few weeks ago, and uh, I, I said, he said, what are you thinking about? I said, well, this passage I'm working on is in 2 Corinthians 12, and it talks about Paul has a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three times that God would take it away, and a third time he said, uh, what God said is, I'm not taking it away, my grace is sufficient for you. And two or three of the commentators that I have read on the passage so far are quick to point out the parallel between Paul praying three times and Jesus praying three times. And both of them praying for something to get changed. Paul praying for the thorn to be removed. Jesus saying, if there's any way for you to do this other than by me going to the cross, could you do it? And both of them resolving, then I'll glory in my weakness that Christ may be saved, and not my will, but your will be done. And what we look at here is that a wise person is someone who hears what Jesus has taught and does it. <laughs> they don't debate it. They don't take it under advisement. They do it. Now, I uh, have a long list of things that I know Jesus has told me to do that I don't do on a regular basis. And... Um, there's a Holy Spirit, the third part, person of the Trinity, who regularly reminds me of that. It's called conviction. And he'll say, hey, Bill, what did you think about that? I go, I thought it was okay. He goes, yeah, we didn't. <laughs> we had a little problem with that. We'd like to revisit that. And, and as we come together in prayer about it, what he wants me to come to is, not my will, but your will be done. And am I willing to embrace that? that I would embrace something not pleasant for me, but something that pleases the one I love. You know? 
That's what it looks like to be a wise person. Someone who has prioritized their pleasures by the person they love. That they would prioritize their pleasures and be able to say no to pleasure because they're saying yes to Jesus. And it's interesting to me how quickly we uh, want to teach each other how to make decisions and how slow we are to talk about an attribute called discernment. Um, there is a saint from long ago called St. Ignatius. He developed a practice called the daily exam. And, and I do that daily exam probably four or five times a week. If I was Ignatius, I'd do it daily. Okay, um, But what, it, what he called it, you know, using some ancient words, was what, what is desolation? Whatever was desolation to his soul, that's what he wanted to distance himself from. And he, his other word was consolation. And whatever was consoling to his soul, he wanted to step into. And I've kind of had to, you know, reframe that into words that make sense to me. And so uh, I'm looking at whatever pulls me away from loving God, I need to recognize that as wind, rain, things that are going to be in my life. And what they really are encouraging me to do is get into another house, to move to San Diego, to get out of the wind and the rain, or move somewhere else when it changes seasons and, and be a snowbird, or something that will somehow put me in a place where all I have is pleasure. I'm a prosperity theologian that's recovering. No? And so what, what, what Jesus is saying here is, it's not wise to just build your house any way you want. It's not wise to think that somehow wind, rain, and floods are things to be avoided. It's actually, how are we going to build our life in such a way that we can endure those things? One of my responsibilities is to encourage and support pastors. Okay? I'm... The seminary, I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of pre-pastors, students. <laughs> and as they graduate, then the seminary still has a responsibility to them. And I get to be part of that responsibility of encouraging the pastors who are graduates or pastors who are in the area and, and being able to be part of supporting the church that's the body of Christ. And in supporting pastors this year, it's amazing to me how many pastors have have framed out their exit strategy of no longer being a pastor. I bet I've heard at least seven pastors say, I didn't go to seminary so I would preach to a red blinking dot. And blinking wasn't like a blank because they didn't want to use a swear word. It's the blinking dot from, from the camera. And they're basically saying, I, I came to preach to crowds. The word pastor has everything to do with shepherd. Caring for souls. And just like that pastor is struggling for who he is when he doesn't see the crowd and get to feed off of their responses because they're behind a screen, his congregants are struggling, aren't you? <laughs> Each one of you struggle with, I, I didn't go to school so that I could do my job behind a screen, or I didn't want to lose my job 
or however you want to fill in a blank. My youngest daughter is a junior high science teacher. She said, Dad, that's the closest thing to being a youth pastor I can do. And I said, oh, no, it takes more faith to give a seventh grader a flame <laughs> than anything I did as a youth pastor. You know, <laughs> you, you are in the midst of it. Um, her world changed to try and teach students in, in a virtual setting. To compound the situation, she teaches in a, in a town called Monroe, Washington. And if you know anything about Monroe, Washington, it's where a state penitentiary is. So about a third of the junior high population has a dad incarcerated. And most of them do not have access to virtual education. And I could watch my daughter's interior ache for her students that she couldn't see every day, that she couldn't come alongside and, and make sure they got it, to just kind of watch some of the dissipation of their tracking or their education. Now, we have mistaken things when we can simply put them on a track and say, I did this to succeed. Because wind has a way of making things blow away. And rain has a way of washing things away. And flood has a way of making things feel very unstable. And in the midst of that kind of feeling this year, as I talk to pastors, it feels to a majority of pastors as though 30% of the church is gone. Not not attending, just evaporated. Now, I'm not saying that they aren't Christians. I'm not saying that they somehow may not even be tracking in their faith. But what I am saying is that Jesus is saying it's unwise to hear what I say and not do it. One of the things that He invites us to do is to gather together. One of the things He invites us to do is serve one another. In fact, there's over 140 one-anothers in the New Testament that we're supposed to do to one another. Pray for one another, love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. The list goes on and on and on. And we can't do that by ourselves. And in our rugged individualism, we've defined Christianity in a way that it's almost like People are the add-on. And so when something happens where we no, don't get the opportunity to connect, we just figure out what we're going to do by ourselves. I don't know how many of you are familiar with a passage that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It talks about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. I'd like you to just take that list sometime and try and do it all by yourself. Just be patient to no one. Be kind to no one and see how kind you are. You have to have someone to be able to express Jesus to. That's what we're called as image bearers. We have to image God to someone to be who God's designed us to be. And so when we somehow privatize or individualize or just say, you know, it's too hard for me, we have gone into a place of somehow thinking that life is supposed to be happy. And I think that's the third correction, is that um, Jesus does not exist to make our lives happy. In fact, I would think it's almost the exact opposite. We exist to please God. And so we get that opportunity. When you say, God, I don't know if I can take this anymore. 
Guess who does know? And he's not at the place saying, gee, I don't know either. Hope you make it. You know, I'd really be happy if you did. He's not even worried. He's saying, let's do this together. Wouldn't it be amazing if what you found in the midst of a problem was that the presence of Jesus was more precious than not having the problem? That would be wise to be able to endure through it rather than bail on it. So the house stands or the house falls. And what I want you to kind of see is maybe the takeaway principle as we look at that chart again. Um, Can we look at that? Yeah. It's just the idea that Jesus does not promise that your life is going to be crisis-free but he does present a life that's crisis proof. That there isn't something you can do that makes your life not worth it when your life is for him. When it's for you, you know, when it's for me, my hardest thing about trusting Jesus with my life after my wife died was that I realized my pleasure was not his ultimate priority. Up till then, I had kind of thought, he's going to be happy making me happy. And I realized that's not the agenda. And I had to re-up. And that took a while for me to be willing to say, okay, not my will, but your will be done. Okay? I'll live in this house built on you with wind. I'll live in this house with rain. I'll live in this house with floods. But I don't want to live alone. And he said, you won't. And when we love him, that makes it worth it. When we love us, it's up for grabs. I really appreciate your prayers tonight for your mayor. My oldest son lives in a little town called Gold Bar, which is on Highway 2 between uh, Seattle and Leavenworth, if you've gone to the um, Little Alps place uh, in Washington. And Gold Bar is one of the last towns before you ascend up into the uh, hills in um, Mount Stevens, or, or Stevens Pass. Um, he, he's the mayor of that town. And um, it's awesome that you pray for your mayor, and I hope that people pray for him as mayor. And uh, Friday, he, he, he's in a, he, he goes to Western, and Friday he's in a cohort, so he was down all day Friday taking a class, and I was speaking on a men's retreat just outside of Seattle, and he was on his way home and stopped by, and we had dinner together at the camp where I was speaking. And what was fun about it was uh, I was telling a story about him at the men's retreat, and then the men were going, is that really the way it went? You know, And it was fun to have him say, Well, kind of, you know, (laughs) Um, uh, but the story was that um, after Jeannie had been diagnosed with cancer and um, first 18 months after her rounds of chemo, she was in remission and then it came back. And when it came back, that was just a very dark time for our whole family. In fact, I started saying our family has cancer. It just happens to be in Jeannie's body. All of us are dealing with cancer. I have four kids that are cancer survivors. I'm a cancer survivor. 
My wife isn't a cancer survivor. But all of us had cancer. It just resided in her body. And he sat down with me. He was 20 years old at the time. And I really believe, in my way of thinking, it was when the switch went from boy to man. And he sat down with me. He goes, Dad, I've been talking to the Sibs. And here's our conclusion. You're you're about 50-50 on whether or not you're going to make it. I go, what do you mean? He goes, we think that there's a real shot that you're going to walk with Jesus and there's a real shot you're going to flip him off and walk away from the whole thing. I said, okay. And he just looked me in the eye. He goes, we need more from you than that. That was awesome. I, I hope you get the experience to have someone love you that much that they would call you up rather than just sit back and watch whether or not you're going to build on sand or build on rock. You know? Just that we need you on the rock, Dad. We can't afford to have you walk away and lose Mom too. We need you to find a solid space in Jesus so that we can know that we can find a solid space in Jesus. I I love that conversation and I'm grateful for it and you know they asked him about it just yesterday on the retreat and and he said yeah yeah I remember saying that and it wasn't fun and it wasn't comfortable and I didn't know what he was going to say back it was 50 50 (laughs) um that I think is really what I want you to to know we don't need to live 50 50 we don't need to live on impulse so that when something hits us, if we impulse rightly, we are wise. And if we impulse incorrectly, we are unwise. We can build our house on Jesus. And we get to practice in the midst of difficulties rather than say, God, give me peace. Give me rest so that I can build my faith. No. We get the opportunity to build our house right now in the midst of unknownness, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of people that are disconnected and edgy. We get the opportunity to build deeper into the rock rather than say, let's see how it goes and if God shows up. He showed up and He's showing up again and He shows up all the time. He just doesn't show up as our inner prosperity theologian demands. He shows up in surprise and invites us to worship that surprise. So that would be my hope for you today is that you would have a life that doesn't have to be crisis free for you to say, I'm all in. So that you could know that Jesus has promised you a life that's crisis proof when there's rains and winds, and floods. And I'd like to pray that that would be your experience. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us, that you envision wind and rain and floods in our lives, but you envision us being able to stand on you rather than collapse in our own lack of strength, lack of wisdom lack of foresight. So Father, I pray for each person here who's been in that 50-50 or maybe in that 50-50 or maybe even losing the 50-50.
But God, we'd react tonight and say, not my will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name.